This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hey everybody, you are tuned to Deep Dive, the All Music Books podcast, where we talk to authors of music books, bios, histories, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J, and today's guest is Pat Thomas, the author of Listen, Whitey, The Sights and Sounds of Black Power. Thanks, Pat, for dropping in with us. Sure, happy to be here. Let's talk about the name of your book. In his introduction of your book, documentary filmmaker Stanley Nelson says, Listen, Brother, might have been a more apt title. He goes on to say that he understands why you went with Listen, Whitey, and admits it's a better title. So can you tell us about the title? Well, Listen, Whitey was the name of a documentary done right after the assassination of Martin Luther King, where basically somebody was walking around the streets of urban America asking you know, disenfranchised blacks about the death of Martin Luther King. Uh, I never have seen the documentary. I think it's extremely rare. But Folkways Records put out an album, basically just the audio sign. That was called Listen Whitey. And I just thought it you know, just has such pizzazz. And I've never regretted doing it because it's just become one of those titles just you know, people pay attention to. It certainly resonates. Uh, and I was just curious, you were going to mention Stanley Nelson, but uh, I wondered how it was received both amongst whites and blacks and if there was a difference of opinion or, or, or what it meant to them. Uh, no, there wasn't a difference of opinion. I think everybody loved it. The book has been highly embraced by the black community. I've done all kinds of events at black colleges and black communities. You know, honkies have to live with it. Um, so, yeah, it's it's all good. Well stated. Um, early on in your book, you differentiate between black power and black militancy and the Black Panthers and those kinds of groups. Can you provide some background on that? Because I think you're right. They do tend to be used interchangeably. Well, yeah, I think to most whites, just sort of put all these people under the umbrella of black militants. What I realized after really digging into all the various groups, the Black Panthers, the US organization, which were very focused on African traditions. So, you know, the thing that's important to remember, you know, Black Panthers never wore dashikis. Black Panthers never took on African names. Everyone might remember Herbie Hancock uh, was calling himself Mawadishi, I think is how you pronounce it. And he was, you know, briefly under the spell of something called the US Organization, which was a group of black nationalists. So these groups are all 
have their own thing. I think we all kind of lump them in together unless you really sort of peel off the layers of the onion and dig in. You write in your book that as the black power movement expanded, it would force Jimi Hendrix, who was an icon to white hippies, to reconsider his apolitical stance. How so? And what was Hendrix's response, both musically and otherwise? Well, first of all, you know, Jimmy, you know, obviously he was an African-American guy and he had the same struggles that a lot of blacks had had. But Jimmy was just into being Jimmy. He was Jimi Hendrix legend first and black man second. You know, and a lot of Black Panthers and Black Nationalists and other people kept taking meetings with him, and they were trying to, you know, the Panthers and others wanted to make him into a spokesman for their causes. And, you know, Jimmy had a lot of empathy for that, but it just wasn't his bag. But nevertheless, you know, he did make some statements. The the song Machine Gun, most famously recorded on uh, January 1st, 1970, at the Fillmore East with the Band of Gypsies, was his statement about the war at home, the war in Vietnam. And so he was sort of musically saying with that song, you know, that there's conflicts on the streets and at home. The other thing is, is the song Voodoo Child, he many times dedicated that song to the Black Panthers in concerts. Yeah, it seems like most of the things that I recall him saying about that period, it was more the peace and love thing, right? Yeah, I mean, he was, you know, he was very much a kind of a black hippie for lack of a better description, and just, you know, was more concerned with his art than politics, for sure. You mentioned the Band of Gypsy. You know, that was Buddy Miles and... Yeah, Billy Cox, right. That was an all-black band, which, you know, again, was... I think Jimmy put those guys together, not for a political statement, uh, but just because that's what he wanted to play with. But nevertheless, people see what they want to see. So they thought, well, okay, Jimmy's making a statement. It's an all-black band. Yeah, and as you mentioned, you know, the black power movement would expand in a lot of different directions. And predictably, it had a huge impact on the music of the day. You had Marvin Gaye's What's Going On or James Brown's Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. They were hugely popular, especially with black audiences, but they found a niche with white audiences as well. What's interesting to me, maybe you can speak about it, is how far apart those two performers and those two songs are, yet they still resonated kind of across the board. Well, you know, James Brown was being chastised by fellow blacks because he was pals with like Hubert Humphrey, and they were I think they were seeing James Brown as a little bit of an Uncle Tom, and Brown kind of responded with, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. So that song was kind of a response then? Well, uh, you know, it, I mean, I can't get inside the, the mind of James Brown. I'm just kind of riffing on what was going on at the time. But yeah, Brown was being chastised for lining himself with mainstream white politicians. And this was one of his responses. You know, that was just an incredible song for so many reasons. Kind of uh, broke open the path for other more provocative songs. For example, there's a Sly Stone song called Don't Call Me Nigger Whitey. And then there were things like The Temptations, you know, Message to a Black Man. Yeah, so there's the whole thing. You know, the, the Marvin Gaye story is a little bit different. That's a much more complex story that a lot of people don't realize. The song What's Going On is originally put together by one of the Four Tops, and it's actually was inspired by white radicals. Four Tops were on tour. They were in the San Francisco, Oakland Bay Area, and they saw a protest by a bunch of white radicals getting their heads bashed in on TV. So one of the Four Tops started sort of penning a thing about that. Meanwhile, kind of at the same time, Marvin Gaye's brother, Frankie Gaye, had been in Vietnam, came home, and started telling Marvin how horrible it was to be fighting in the jungles of Vietnam. So, interesting enough, the four-top guy 
happened to run into Joan Baez backstage in England at a concert TV show they were both performing on, and she showed some interest in doing something with this skeletal version of what's going on. Keep in mind, it doesn't necessarily have that title yet, right? Right. Anyway, for whatever reason, Joan, it didn't happen, and so when the Four Tops guy brought it to Marvin, Marvin was already politically energized about Vietnam, and then he finished the song, and that's how the whole thing comes to fruition. It's a much more global concept, too. You know, I think it's a little bit easier for white folks to embrace, and it's a little more difficult to be singing, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud when you're not. But what's going on was something on a different level, you know, that the whole country at that point was responding to in different ways. Well, yeah, I mean, we kind of have apples and oranges. One song is inspired by being black. The other song is inspired by Vietnam and just police bashing, in this case, white skulls, although it could have been black skull. They're apples and oranges, a very different song. Yes, but uh, what's going on definitely has an inherent blackness to it, you know, with some of the talkovers and the, the outros and those kinds of things. It feels fairly street to me, even today. The other interesting thing is a lot of people have never connected the dots, but Sly Stone's album called There's a Riot Going On, that title is a direct response to Marvin's What's Going On. Oh, wow. I did not know that. So let's talk a little bit about Motown. You, you brought in the Four Tops, and you know Marvin Gaye, of course, recorded for them. Uh, the music as a whole, it, it had such a crossover appeal with pop and white audiences, but yet it was equally popular with black American audiences. And the music was about as far away as one could be from black power music, right? You know, the whole Motown thing is very complex on a social political level. But, you know, one of the things that Motown did was make black music platable for white audiences. Motown was selling records on the R&B soul charts and the same records were also selling on the mainstream pop charts. And so I think that Barry Gordy and his whole team and the musicians did an amazing job of making black music safe for white Americans. However, as the 60s wore on, black consciousness and black power expanded. Barry Gordy was getting letters from fans saying, hey, how come you don't let the Supremes wear their hair in a natural, meaning an afro? So, you know, so he was getting a little bit of heat of not letting these artists be, for lack of a better word, more black. Right. Uh, and finally, this all kind of comes to a head when Martin Luther King is assassinated in April 68 where some of the younger Motown staffers go to Barry Gordy and say, you know, we need to be making a more political statement. And so out of that comes a Motown subsidiary label called Black Forum that even a lot of hardcore Motown fans are not aware of. And basically these are about a half dozen albums that come out between uh, 70 and about 74, and they include posthumously Martin Luther King's speech about why he's against the Vietnam War, a Stokely Carmichael speech about Black Panther Huey Newton called Free Huey, a really amazing militant kind of almost proto-hip-hop album by the legendary Black poet Amiri Baraka called Who Will Survive America. Black Panther Elaine Brown was a singer-songwriter and kind of a more traditional piano-based singer-songwriter album. There's a Langston Hughes album. There's even an amazing album of Black Soldiers being interviewed in the jungles of Vietnam of why they hate being in Vietnam. So my book digs deep into this. There's about 40 or 50 pages on this, lots of photos of all the album covers, many of which are quite hard to find these days. It's a very interesting to see that there's a whole other side to Motown that 
that many of us uh, don't know anything about. Well, there's lots of nuggets in your book that I didn't know. This label geared to fairly radical, specifically black content is kind of a shock because Motown was such a mainstream form of music entertainment. I'm guessing that was intentional, or at least, you know, on a business level, that Gordy, who, you know, was all about, uh, you know, keeping the product moving and the profits, uh, to keep that on the down low. Is that a fair assumption? You know, I, I interviewed a former Motown exec who was there at that time, and he said it was hard to get even the black retailers and black distributors to carry these records. So in other words, they'd say, okay, we'll take a thousand copies of the new Supreme single. We'll take a thousand copies of the new Temptations album. And why don't you give us uh, 50 copies of that uh, Stokely Carmichael, Black Panther, Huey Newton speech, right? Ouch. You know? So, you know, I mean, I'm not judging Barry for doing this. In fact, if anything, I applaud him. Barry had never really talked about this label in all the countless interviews that he's done, you know, over the last 30 or 40 years. And right after my book came out, all of a sudden he's doing an interview and he's mentioning Black Forum and how proud he is of it. And then the other thing that happened that was pretty remarkable, even though Motown sold their music catalog off to Universal Records decades ago, the Gordy family has always overseen the Motown Museum in Detroit. And again, you know, months after my book comes out, all of a sudden, I mean, every Black Forum record is on display for the first time ever in the museum. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he has a wide legacy. And it's interesting that this is a, something that would come out so late in that legacy and perhaps be something that stands the test of time for him. Yeah, very much so. And, and the other thing that just happened for people listening and going, how can I hear these albums? I'm happy to report that Motown Universal Records just about a month or two ago re-released the Mary Barack album, uh, Who Will Survive America, and the Elaine Brown album on vinyl LPs. And that's the first time those records have been reissued in any format since they originally came out in the early 70s. So you can find them again. That's interesting. They'd be reissued on vinyl, which is seeing a resurgence. But I wonder what the thought process behind it is on that and perhaps a different story. But uh, it's very cool that they're back in print. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. Sly Stone, you mentioned Sly Stone. He would go on to be just a, a, a massive uh, superstar and influential person, as would Gil Scott Heron, who would push the envelope even further from what's going on, or, or James Brown, uh, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, those kinds of things. Something very much much more specific in Gil Scott Heron's case. Could you talk about those two? Uh, well, you know, Sly, 
I mean, you know, I mentioned uh, that provocative title earlier. He also, of course, had a song called Stand, you know, which to me means, you know, stand up for your rights. Uh, you know, Sly was political, but he was also, uh, I think people forget, you know, he was delivering a universal message, you know, everyday people. Why can't we all get along? He also had a mixed race band of blacks and whites and one of the few bands that had male and females in them. So, you know, Sly is very, very, you know, groundbreaking, but I think it also applies to Sly, which is Sly wasn't hung up about being black. He was just into being Sly. I mean, he's just, he's, it's, it's an all encompassing thing, kind of the way Dylan has written political songs, but at the end of the day, Dylan is Dylan. He does what he does. In terms of Gil Scott Heron, he's obviously very, very driven by uh, social political matters. Obviously, the song um, Revolution Will Not Be Televised. One of the things that I encountered doing my research, and, and this isn't really a big surprise, but I hadn't really thought about it before I wrote the book, is you know the last poets were a big, big inspiration on Gil Scott Heron. And I started to see you know that he you know took various lyrical ideas from them early on. And then I found a interview recently with one of the last poets who said, you know, when we played some university, you know, before Gil Scott Heron was famous, he turned up backstage, you know, just to kind of soak in the uh, the vibe. And it's a pity that Gil kind of lost the plot when he became a crackhead, but he certainly did, you know, many, many, many amazing albums before that and other great messages like It's Winter in America. That song is just incredible. I remember seeing him several times at a small club up here in Cambridge, and it was usually just him and a piano. And those songs were so powerful. Winter in America, I think you could argue, is equally as relevant today as it was when it came out. And in fact, the revolution is being televised. So, <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it is. It's being televised and repackaged and rebranded constantly. But uh, yes, yes, yes. You mentioned The Last Poets a couple of times. That's a band I don't think a lot of people knew about. I certainly didn't until Disc, where I worked, repackaged a few of their records. You know, they forecast rap music in so many ways. You know, you have politics and music and style and branding. You can see their influence on like a Public Enemy or an NWA, or the bands that are, are more that side of rap music. What do you think their legacy is? I think that The Last Poets are, you know, arguably... You know, you know, the single most important influence on rap and hip hop in the way that, you know, there wouldn't be a, a Rolling Stones without Chuck Berry. But, you know, I always like to dig a little bit deeper when I do these books and find yet who's the underdog below the underdog. And one of the artists that I discovered and champion in the book is a West Coast version of The Last Poets, if you will, called The Watts Prophets. They had an album in 1970 called Rappin' and I Put in a Black World. And it turns out that their early songs predate The Last Poets by something like two years or you know, something like that. So it's interesting to find out that there's always somebody who did it before the guy that we thought did it. And so, and so I think that the Watts, Watts Prophets, again, they're not as well known, but I found out some interesting things. It turns out that Bob Marley was obsessed with them. He talked to them before his death about trying to collaborate. And one of the Watts Prophets is actually a reverend and did the eulogy at Bob Marley's funeral. And considering the Watts Prophets, they were never on a bigger label. You know, the, the Last Poets had Alan Douglas connected to Hendrix behind them. So they, you know, they certainly got a better, a better shot. But, you know, both bands are very important for people to check out. Let's move on to another legend. Nina Simone, who wrote Young, Gifted, and Black, was a hugely influential artist. That had a really interesting genesis that I learned about from your book. Can you go into that? 
Lorraine Hansberry was a African-American woman. She was a poet, novelist, and, and also wrote uh, screenplays. And she had written a play called Young, Gifted, and Black just before she died in 1965. And in 1968, it became an off-Broadway play. In 1969, Nina wrote that song, Young, Gifted, and Black, based on the play. And then in 1972, Aretha recorded the song and even named an entire album title as well. Lorraine is kind of lost to the seeds of time by most people, but if you Google her, see that she was a very influential uh, Black writer. Right, and Donny Hathaway covered that famously as well and took it in a whole other direction. Yeah, and it also just kind of became a, a slogan. It's just, it's just a great saying, young, gifted, and black. Yeah, that translated, I know, down to Kingston, Jamaica. There's a, a really great kind of rock study early reggae cover of that as well. So I know that one had a lot of reach just in terms of the messaging. So jumping ahead a little bit, so we talk about bands like that. And then in your book, which is very interesting, uh, Listen Whitey, The Sights and Sounds of Black Power, you mentioned Nile Rodgers, who is in the band Chic, and everybody knows Freak Out, and Chaka Khan. They were rank-and-file Black Panther members. They'd become bona fide pop stars in the 70s and 80s with huge commercial hits. Tell me something good. I found that surprising that those two were, you know, rank-and-file members. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things about both of my books, my other, I have another book about Jerry Rubin and the Yippies, is this is an era when, and I'm speaking both towards black and white counterculture now, it's an era when the counterculture and pop culture are sort of almost one and the same. In other words, you know, images of the Black Panthers were ubiquitous on TV, the Yippies, Jerry Rubin, Abby Hoffman were ubiquitous on TV. And so it's not surprising to find out that a young Nile Rogers or a young Taka Khan are associated as teens or early 20s with the Black Panthers, because if you were paying attention and you happen to live in an urban area where the Panthers were, chances are, you know, if you didn't join the party, you were going to at least embrace their message. You know, and, 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 you know, this even ties in with, you know, white movie stars like Jane Fonda embracing the Black Panthers or Candace Bergen, you know, just... It became the, the thing to do partially because it was cool, but more importantly because they, they were right. The Panthers needed to happen. They needed to uh, shake things up a bit. Right. One of the things I would tell all of our listeners to check out your book for are some of these images. And there's one that references what we just spoke about where it says, can you pick the Black Panthers from this photograph, right? It was a little bit of a satire combined with an earnest thing. So there's, I believe Roberta Flack is in that photo and jazz pianist, Buzz McCann, and then some actual Panthers. You know, again, this is an era where just wearing a black beret, whether you were a, a Panther or not, you know, was just part of the, again, the blending of the social, political, the counterculture, the pop culture. Another chapter you open up is a jazz chapter, and you talk about the influence on jazz where you said, quote, while soul provided the soundtrack to the revolution on the streets, jazz expanded black consciousness. What was going on in the jazz world during this time? I mean, you know, how do you expand the black consciousness with largely instrumental music? If you dive into my book, which is not just about music, but it's also a, a little social political history of the black power movement, there's a difference between the Black Panthers and black nationalists. Black nationalists are very centered on their African roots. Black nationalists are the ones that often would change their name. So they were into taking on, let's say, Swahili names, learning uh, African languages and phrases, while the Black Panthers were more about, we're Americans and we want to establish our Black culture here in America, not necessarily looking back to Africa. So 
a lot of jazz musicians, while some were inspired by the Black Panthers, many of them were more inspired by Black nationalism. And so... You know, the Art Ensemble of Chicago, for example, wound up having great success in Paris. And then, you know, they went up playing in Africa. Roland Kirk started writing much more political material, again, even if there wasn't lyrics. And it's not to say that all jazz guys became black nationalists. For example, Les McCann recorded his buddy's song, Compared to What?, written by Gene McDaniels which is not a black nationalist song. It's just a great protest song. You know, Miles Davis became more political. But, you know, Miles is very similar to Hendrix. The Panthers were always trying to get Miles roped in, and he just didn't have any interest in that. I guess what I'm trying to say in a roundabout way is there was a, an undercurrent of either black power, black Panthers, and or black nationalism just running through a lot of the uh, jazz culture. So it was, it was kind of a sublimial message to the listener, because again, this is mostly instrumental music. But there were guys like Gary Bartz, a well-known saxophone player. He started recording albums with this guy, Andy Bay, a black vocalist. Horace Silver, who's mainly known as a, an instrumentalist, recorded a lot for Blue Note, he started recording three albums of sort of you know black consciousness, again, with Andy Bay on vocals. So, yeah, my book is not authoritative in this, but it's a nice primer for most of us who just aren't aware of this. Uh, I kind of you know, give, give it a nice overview. Well, I got to give you a shout out to uh, the uh, Les McCann compared to what I remember you turning me on to that song through a book on Les McCann. And that is just a, a really great protest song, as you say, and people should definitely look that one up. I did not know it. And it's it's amazing. It's on YouTube and a live performance is incredible. That's right, and it's it's also one of the few uh, jazz albums that became a million seller at the time. Uh, it's on an album called Swiss Movement that came out in 1969 or 70 on, on Atlantic. But uh, yeah, compared to what? There's, it's incomparable, no pun intended. We should also note that the movement's influence, you know, it spread from soul to jazz, and as you mentioned, poetry as well. But also, uh, there was the black exploitation film movement, so-called, because most of the, the movies were written, starred, and directed by African-Americans, and um, they all seem to have really heavy-duty soundtracks attached to them. Donny Hathaway, Bobby Womack, Isaac Hayes, Curtis Mayfield. It seems like everybody was, wanted to get in on that. I don't dive too deep into black exploitation in my book because I, it's kind of a separate genre. And I think the black community, especially the Panthers and things, kind of had a mixed reaction to black exploitation. And so, you know, a couple of times people have asked me, how come there's not more about black exploitation in my book? And I just saw that as a connected but sort of a separate thing. But the, the reason I brought that up, however, is do you know what the story was with Herbie Hancock's unreleased soundtrack for a movie, a movie called The Spook Who Sat By The Door? I was looking at that the other day, and it's super hard to find. And like 85 bucks for a vinyl version or something. The term, the spook is set by the door, is a phrase referring to back in the day when companies were being sort of forced or suggested, well, you need to have at least one black employee to prove that you're supportive of black. Cynically, they would call it the spook is set by the door, which is like, okay, we're going we're gonna to hire somebody black and we're going to put them near the front door so everyone knows we've got them. It's the premise of the title. However, the movie is the story of a former black CIA agent who uses all of his expertise that he learned in the CIA to start kind of a black revolution on the streets. And so the movie came out, and it was just very controversial for obvious reasons. This is uh, The novel was written in 1969, and the movie gets made in 73. And so Herbie did the soundtrack, and of course, you know, Herbie was at one of his many peaks of his powers in 73. 
it's not so much that Herbie has you know, suppressed the soundtrack, but just, I don't know if it's legal reasons or whatever, that the thing is kind of just languished in the vaults. So basically what people have done is they've just held a microphone up to their TV set and put out kind of mid-fi bootlegs, bootleg vinyl of the music with a little bit of the talking from the movie. And so I think the reason why it's like an $80 collectible is, you know, we're in between pressing, so to speak, from the bootleggers. Uh, but it, that's kind of the background on that. Thought there might be some crossover there between the CIA term and then the the racial epithet. Wasn't sure how that all worked out, but I, I did see. You know, it's it's unusual that an artist of Herbie's stature, it, you can't find this thing anyway. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, it's, it's basically what I call a a bootleg or even a gray market release. What do you think the long-lasting legacy and the influence of Black Power music is? Obviously, we've spoken about rap and probably everything style, culture, politics. The legacy of this stuff is in political groups like Black Lives Matter. It's unfortunately, you know, blended into things like Ferguson, Trayvon Martin. And, and so, yes, the, the music in my book is sadly as relevant than ever. You know, we had a black president, which was great, but uh, we've, we've got a long way to go as a society. Indeed. And you stole my last question about the relevancy in today's world. It, it does seem there you go again, you know, it's same as it ever was, uh, to quote the talking heads. So you mentioned your earlier book, the Jerry Rubin book, which I've reviewed on our site. And now you've got this book out, which is incredible. Everybody should buy this just because flipping through this is really an experience. Uh, so you've got two kind of socio-political books with some musical content. Do you have anything new? Yeah, uh, I got a couple of things cooking uh, with the same publisher that did those two books, Fanographic Books, based out of Seattle, in cooperation with the Ernie Kovacs estate. As a, he's a, was a very famous comedian in the late 50s, early 60s. We're doing an Ernie Kovacs kind of scrapbook, just a ton of ephemera and memorabilia. In some ways, more of a pop culture than a counterculture thing. But you know, Ernie was a big influence on the original cast of Saturday Night Live. And so arguably, once again, that era when pop culture and counterculture blended. And that book will be out in 2020. I'd like to thank our guest, Pat Thomas, author of Listen, Whitey. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com. And you can buy it through our site. We'd appreciate it, and so would Pat. You can also check out the rest of our Deep Dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer extraordinaire, Steve Folsom, who can be found at www.fullsound.com. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an all-music books podcast.